are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Glory to Jesus Christ. Glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Evergetinas. We are picking up this evening on page 37, and we uh, broke off last week midway through number four at the very bottom of the page. And uh, if you remember, we've been speaking about how one deals with both insults and uh, praise from others. And so we are offered a number of beautiful stories uh, again this week uh, of how uh, individuals, individual monks did both uh, in their life and, uh, and sometimes the trials that this brought them. And uh, if you remember last time we uh, ended up ended off with uh, sort of a curious little image where uh, one of the fathers said, if all the tongues of mankind were to accuse him, it would not be possible to describe all of his faults. And uh, and so we often aren't aware, I think, of the, the many ways within our minds and our hearts that we sin against love, against others, against God. And uh, if we had a greater clarity, it would certainly foster humility within our hearts. And I think that's the part of the reason for these uh, stories and the multiplying of them, that we might come to see that, have no illusions about ourselves, not to throw us into a kind of self-hatred or despair, but to lead us to cast ourselves upon the mercy of God, but also to look uh, upon others uh, with mercy and compassion that, uh, that we have received from God. And that's the spirit that we would want uh, to, to read these in. And uh, right before coming on this afternoon, I've been reading a little bit of uh, Isaac the Syrian in preparation, uh, certainly for our upcoming group after the Ladder of Divine Ascent. And uh, just before we begin to sort of uh, put this all in a frame that we'll be looking at this evening, he wrote, Brother, this is what I recommend to let the weight of compassion within you tip the scale to point to the point that you might feel within your heart God's own compassion for the world. And so I think this is what, and Isaac's certainly one of the, the great greatest of the spiritual fathers and, and writers, that we would let uh, the scales tip uh, in our view of others, and that we might come to look upon others with the compassion of God. And sometimes this only takes place after we have been humbled 
uh, it's humility, if you remember, in John Climacus's writing that uh, precedes the gift of discernment that allows us to see uh, things clearly, both about our circumstances, but certainly to be able to see with clarity uh, what is going on in the lives of others so that we might look upon them with compassion and mercy. And so with this spirit in mind, let's pick up with Everettinus again. And we are at the bottom of, as we said, of page 37, midway through number four. If the righteous Job said that I am filled with disgrace, and he was to no great extent so filled, what can I say who am an entire sea of every evil? The devil has lowered us down to every kind of sin. Do we not have a responsibility then to know that we have been so debased? Those who know themselves well shattered Satan, who shattered them. As the fathers have said, when his humility reaches down to hell, the humble man is raised up to the heavens. Just as on the contrary, when pride reaches up to the heavens, the prideful man is hurled down to hell. This is one of the most beautiful paragraphs, I think, in this hypothesis, uh, in any case. And in particular, the, this, the, the saying there, those who know themselves well shatter Satan, who shattered them. That he who has fragmented us internally uh, and our hearts so that we lose our capacity to love and to be faithful, to be obedient to God, uh, is in turn shattered when our humility, uh, as the author says here, reaches down to hell. It's then that we can be lifted up. When our humility allows us to see ourselves fully debased, or as we are debased by our sin, it is then that God can lift us up and uh, show us the fullness of his compassion and mercy. Uh, in the similar way, when we reach for things inappropriately because of our pride, uh, immediately we will uh, fall from the heavens, as it were, into the depths of hell, that we can lose what has been hard won over the course of many years of the spiritual life by giving ourselves over to the pride of the evil one. Uh, but the phrasing of this, I thought in particular, was striking. Uh, this acknowledgement of having been shattered by the evil one, that we can use what has brought destruction to us simply by humbly acknowledging it before God and turning away from it and turning toward him. And it also then gives us that capacity that I think uh, I mentioned St. Isaac speaks of, to tip the scales to allow us to turn towards the other, not with uh, a suspicious eye or an eye that scrutinizes their failures or their uh, or their personal uh, personal weaknesses or flaws, but allows us to look at them with an eye of generosity and the desire to love them and to share with them the compassion that we have received. So a beautiful paragraph. It would be worthy of marking it to go back and uh, to read again. And this father says in conclusion, who can force a humble man to bring into his mind thoughts against anyone? 
for whatever grief a humble man suffers or hears about, he takes it as an opportunity to demean and deride himself as Abba Moses did. That is when the clergy once threw him out of the holy altar and insulted him. He had insulted himself even more strongly than they had insulted him. And if someone should succeed in upsetting a humble man by an attack or injustice visited upon him, he immediately takes refuge in prayer by which he quickly soothes his heart. So humility, uh, as we see, becomes a key, key weapon in the spiritual battle, that whatever is said about us, what could possibly be said to us, or what insult could be given to us, that we would not be able to add to, uh, knowing ourselves as we truly are, and seeing the things that no one in this world sees about us. And so this humility uh, makes us impervious to those insults. And But if they do strike deep, and if they do stir us, we, we have, as the author t tells us, our, our refuge. And that is prayer. That this is where we are to seek to soothe ourselves. And so often we seek to soothe ourselves by uh, directing that anger or that hostility back at others, thinking that uh, and by putting them in their place, we will ease the, the weight or, or the sting of what they've accused us of. And in the end, it only diminishes us. And uh, I think this is the big temptation of, uh, of the evil one, which is to allow our ego than to rise up in our own self-defense. Uh, and not only that, uh, to defend ourselves against an untruth, but to strike out against another, to want to make sure that this doesn't happen again uh, by putting them in their place. And it is only this prayer that really is the true balm for the, the human heart. Uh, again, knowing the love and the mercy that we have received from God, that, you know, what is it that another thinks ill of us when God himself has looked upon us with mercy, when he's given us his only begotten son, when he's given us confession, when he's given us the Holy Eucharist, that what have we to fear from the words of another? Or if our uh, reputation is diminished in the eyes of, of the world altogether, that there is nothing lost to us in God. And not this alone, he continues, but at the very moment that he becomes upset, he vehemently censures himself, continuously checking himself and saying to his soul, why, my wretched soul, are you acting crazy? What have you become upset? What have you become upset, like those who foam at the mouth? I'm sorry. Why have you become upset, like those who foam at the mouth? With precisely this upset, you show that you are ill. For if you were not ill, you would not have felt pain. Why, hapless soul, have you forsaken self-reproach for the condemnation of your brother, since it was he who revealed your illness? which was hidden within you, 
and of which you were ignorant until now. And so even if we experience the sting of this, it reveals that we are still attached to that reputation and that we, we are indeed ill. And so even at this point, the one who insults us, the one who rebukes us, even in, in a hapless fashion, is revealing to us something that has remained hidden, that there is a touchiness of mind and heart that still afflicts us and still can move us. And in fact, he tells us, make, make us act in a crazy fashion that we will foam at the mouth uh, at another. Uh, and, uh, and so we become less like human beings created in the image and likeness of God and more like beast at that moment, uh, unable to control our emotions. So, you know, it's hard, I think, when the mind and the heart have been formed in this way to be able to say to oneself that what is what is happening here is that something is being revealed to me that I, I have not seen in the past. Whatever gains I may have made in the spiritual life, and even if I have seemed to be free uh, from uh, the crit critique of others, uh, if somebody says the right thing to us or pushes the right button, we find ourselves acting crazy. And But it reveals the, an important truth to us that we have to allow the, the light of God to shine upon this place that has been hidden to us in the past in order that he might bring us healing. He goes on to write, Imitate Christ, who when he was mocked, did not retaliate with ridicule, being unmenacing at what he suffered at the hands of the Pharisees and the high priest. Listen to what is to be said and put it into practice. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheek to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting referencing Isaiah 50 here. And you, wretch, because of one attack, sit and concoct numberless thoughts against your brother who benefited you by a small blow uh, against your self-respect, not understanding that, like the demons, you thus cause harm to yourself. For what more harm can the demons do to you than the injury that you have brought on yourself, thoughtless, and ill-fated as you are. So interesting imagery there, isn't it? That we will sit back and concoct numberless responses to one insult or one sign of disrespect from another, that we can sit and fantasize about potential conversations that we will have with a, another person and uh, repeated in our mind, you know, if I thought if this person says this to me again, then I'm going to say this to them, because this is so clear and obvious about their character and, and their flaws. And uh, and so we are doing battle here on the deepest level 
And uh, this morning I was in the little city of desert reflection from Hezekiah, the priest. He says that there is a battle that wages with uh, uh, before us every single day between uh, the the noose that has been purified, that is the eye of the heart, the eye of the soul, and the demonic noose that the evil one whose vision of things is, has been completely darkened by sin will wage war against us constantly. And if we open the door to that, uh, uh, to the lies that are told or the temptations that are set before us, then this battle can become wholly interior for us, that our own noose can become a demonic noose, that it our noose becomes darkened and to the point where uh, evil seems to be good to us. And this is exactly what the author is talking about here, that we harm ourselves uh, when our, our vision becomes dark and when we give ourselves over to the anger after being insulted, it's like we are cutting ourselves, we are harming ourselves when we react and strike out against another person. And so we're doing the very things that make the demons fall. And so uh, it's a kind of self-harm. We're, uh, we're not even at that point being guided by them but simply by our own emotion. And the elder Zosimus adds to his conclusion, let us look upon the cross of Christ and let us each day reflect upon the passions which he suffered for us. Yet we cannot endure the least attack. Indeed, we have deviated from the straight path. And so in these final two paragraphs, the standard of Christ is put before us. That uh, this is, again, you know, our most powerful weapon, prayer, but the example that we are given to in Christ, we see his strength, we see his virtue, and how he responded, though innocent, to the worst of attacks. And when we are able to keep this before the mind's eye, that's when we are strengthening ourselves. I think I've mentioned here before that um, some of the religious sisters uh, that I knew uh, from the Latin Rite uh, said that they prayed the, the, the stations of the cross every single day of their life. Uh, which was an extraordinary thing when I first heard that, that uh, typically in the, in the uh, Western uh, right, that, you know, we'll do that during Lent and do it communally. And, uh, but to think of doing and saying and praying the uh, stations across daily is to be immersed in the passion of Christ. And this is what shapes and forms the mind and heart to, to love uh, like he does, and to imitate him. And again, indeed, when we, we look at the lives of the saints, uh, Francis of Assisi uh, in the 
hours of the office, he would include in every hour a certain section that involved a meditation upon the passion of the Lord. So multiple times throughout the course of the day while he was praying, that, that prayer was focused in particular upon the sufferings of our Lord. And you think about how that would form and shape uh, the mind and the heart over the course of time and how it would strengthen us uh, in this battle when we find ourselves uh, insulted by another. If that were the first image that would come to mind. Okay, any questions or comments before we move on to the next number? Okay. Number five. He also said this. If one were to live as many years as Methuselah, and yet did not walk that same path on which all of the saints proceeded, that is the path of accepting dishonor and hurt and enduring them calmly, he will not progress in any good thing, but will merely pass his years aimlessly. And so if our life seems to go on indefinitely and we lacked this humility and lack this ability to endure dishonor, our progress would be nil on a spiritual level. And again, that puts things into perspective for us, that in an instant we can turn to God and know his mercy and compassion, but also be lifted up uh, out of the uh, anger of the insult or the pain of the insult and know the consolation of God in a moment, in an instant. But if we had all the, the years that we could imagine stretch on before us and did not have this virtue, then there, there would be no progress for us whatsoever. Which also tells us a lot about the ascetic life as a whole, that we could invest ourselves and work very hard, yet if we were filled with pride, that all of these things come to naught. They don't bear the fruit in our, our life that they imagine. Thomas Merton said that one of the saddest things is to climb up a ladder, and when you reach the top, to realize that you leaned the ladder on the wrong wall. And so you, were, you weren't even climbing the right wall. And so often, I think in life, that's true for us, that we have in our mind to strive for something that we think is important and valuable, that will bring meaning to our life. And only to realize after having spent the, you know, the majority of our years, perhaps, pursuing these things, that they don't amount to what we had imagined. And, you know, I think the thing that often awakens us is when, you know, when there is a diagnosis of some serious illness, you know, or one that tends to be mortal, you know, that, uh, that all of a sudden uh, we see things in stark relief, uh, that the meaning of our life, the time we spent, what we spent our energy on and what really had true value in our life. And the desire I think that we would all want as men and women of faith is that when that moment comes to us, it's not one of fear or trepidation, that we would have this sense of not changing anything 
that we had invested ourselves in what endures and what is worthy of our love. Number six, another time he said, a brother once asked me, Abba, the commands of Christ are many and I become confused in mind and cannot retain them all. Tell me then, what am I to do? To this I responded, my brother, do not upset me by this, but simply reflect on the following and adhere to it as much as you can. That is, endure all that befalls you with thankfulness. And in this way, you will easily attain to all the virtues. For what labor is there in praying for those who grieve, who grieve you? Is it perhaps like digging in the earth or running a race or crossing the sea? or suffering an economic loss. So enduring everything that befalls us, that accepting this providence of God in our life in a radical way, again, to love in an uncalculating fashion, where we are not trying to control and manipulate the circumstances of our day-to-day -day life, but meet things in the moment as they come to us, especially other individuals. And so what does it cost us, he's saying, to pray for another who might insult us? It costs us nothing. Is it even comparable to, for us to the labor that goes in to digging a ditch or running a race or crossing a sea or suffering economic loss? that it takes a moment in the, in the heart, again, to, to pray for another, to lift them up to God. And yet that moment can seem to be the hardest thing in our life to do, the most difficult thing to do, and impossible, we will tell ourselves too, uh, that I could not possibly pray for that individual. And, uh, and so it's a curious thing, you know, don't upset me with your question, because what we have in Christ offers us this clarity, you know, this receptivity of what comes, his embrace of the Father's will, his unwillingness to strike out at others, to pray even from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, even while pinned to the cross. And so again, this Christ himself is the, the perfect example for us. So, he says, feel gratitude when you are derided, becoming a disciple of the holy apostles who held forth in joy, being made worthy of disgrace in the name of Christ. Moreover, they were scorned for the name of Christ in their purity whereas we deserve to be disgraced by virtue of our sins. For even if someone does not touch our honor, we are unworthy and damnable. Because as it is said, cursed are they which do err from thy commandments. Not all are capable of being disgraced for the name of Christ, but only the saints and the pure, as I said. That which we can do is endure with gratitude the attack and insults which are directed at us and acknowledge that we are justly ridiculed for our pitiable works. 
So it's interesting. It's, you know, he continues to take us deeper and deeper into this reality that the reality of our sin and the sins that we commit against God and the law of God is something that we fail to fathom, that we really don't grasp it, that we are constantly the recipients of the mercy of God uh, at some, you know, at every moment of our life. And you know the saying, even the righteous man sins seven times a day. That is perfectly that there is this inability that we have uh, to grasp the, the ways that we, we do not love in the way that God intends us or has created us to love. And, uh, and so what other attitude can we have to then gratitude for receiving that? Especially uh, when the apostles receive what they did. In fact, we, they're almost held up for us to envy to be jealous of them, as it were, that they were worthy in some sense to be insulted because of the, their purity, but because of their love of the name of Christ. So to, to you know, if uh, have a holy jealousy, if you will, of those who were had this experience of being mocked by the world because of their their faith. It all, it's almost like he holds it out there as a prize. You know, nobody, not everybody gets this in their, their life, you know, and it should be something we aspire to rather than flee from at every moment. It's certainly a much different way of, of looking at the world and looking at our life. But that wretched soul, which though acknowledging its impure deeds and the fact that it justly suffers what befalls it, nonetheless falls and misleads its conscience, hatching thoughts against its brother, saying, you said something to insult me and spoke badly of me, and being stubbornly insensible, foolish, rash, comes to hate itself and accomplishes the work of the demons. So it's interesting, you know, he comes to the end of that and he says, comes to hate itself. So we will hatch these ideas within our minds about how, again, we would respond to what somebody says to us. And because of our stubbornness, our insensibility, our foolishness, then we can reach this point that we come to hate ourselves and inflict upon ourselves what the demons are trying to draw us into. We inflict upon ourselves this sin of striking out against another, of judging another harshly. Just as in the instance of artist, a craftsman teaches a skill to an apprentice and can leave him thereafter to work on his own, not having to stay by him constantly to guide him, but simply looking in on him at intervals lest he become lax in his work or somehow ruin part of his artwork. So precisely do the demons operate. If they see that a soul easily submits to them and easily entertains evil thoughts, they teach it their satanic art, that is, their cunning and their evil, 
and have no further need of remaining near, near it, knowing that it can adequately come to destruction and be lost on its own. They visit it only from time to time to see that it has not become negligent in the work which they have assigned it. Wow. I remember when at first reading that, I was it's such a striking thought. Uh, and you, you don't realize that that's what he's setting setting up there. You know, okay, a, a craftsman or an artisan takes on an apprentice to teach him a, an art. But what he's actually leading us here is to consider, oh, oh my gosh, it's the demons that are the craftsmen of sin, the artist of sin. And if they find a willing apprentice, uh, one who has guile, who's cunning, and can be malicious in that cunning, you know, they will bring them to a point where, like the craftsmen, they only have to look in on, on them every once in a while to make sure they are following that, that path. And, uh, but once they're on that path and have learned that art, uh, it becomes something natural for them. Uh, you know, almost without, without their having to think about it. And so the demons don't even have a need to stay, stay near uh, once a heart has been wholly given over to this particular darkness. Uh, yes, a couple of people have referred to C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters, uh, which is sort of a dialogue between, if I remember correctly, demons talking about how to uh, bring souls to ruin. And, uh, and But this is what we, it's almost what we hear in these stories of the fathers uh, seems to... Uh, point to what C.S. Lewis would capture so beautifully in his work, that, uh, that this is an art and it's organized and relentless and uh, considering every possibility uh, that can trip a person up in the spiritual life. And so again, you know, we, I think in reading these things, we understand that we cannot be, uh, partway in the spiritual battle, that it has to be something that we give our hearts over to fully, that we love God with all of our heart and desire to serve him. And so we are willing to take every thought captive. We're willing to uh, you know, seek these ways where we can be humbled and foster humility. And, uh, and that there's nothing that's too great of a cost, that this is the pearl of great price or the treasure hidden in the field uh, that we should be willing to sell all to possess. Number seven, another time, Elder Zosimus said, is there any easier thing than to love everyone and to be loved by everyone? What rest is not to be had in the commandments of God? But we are not inclined by intention to those commandments. For if we were so inclined, then by the grace of God, all things would be easy for the soul, so that the slightest act of will would bring the aid of God to us, as I have often said. Virtue requires nothing more than our will, 
as the divine Anthony says, and there is no need for toil, for all acts in synergy with grace. What rest then do the quiet and humble not have? Indeed, the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. I don't think very many people look at the spiritual life in this fashion uh, or would understand the action of grace uh, in this way, uh, that it is something that one could come to the point where it is the most natural thing in the world, that it is not beyond our grasp, that we have been created for God, and that there is this synergy that exists. And this is a very important con concept in the uh, writings of the fathers, that there is the synergy between our act of the will and the action of God's grace. And I think we often magnify the act of the will, you know, making it seem Herculean uh, to do certain things. And this is where the fathers are challenging that, saying, no, it takes a moment to say yes to God. And then there's a flood of grace. And so who can know a greater peace than the one who is constantly turned toward Christ and seeks to remain in that peace and stays in that peace. If one's thoughts are always on God and one sees everything in their life in and through that, the lens of that relationship, then, then it's going to be clear to us how we are to respond and not seem difficult to us. Uh, if there is love that uh, is is guiding us. Again, love is always the most powerful of motivators. And so if there's a, a love of God, there's not going to be anything that is asked of us that we feel is too great. It's a hard thing. I, you know, to, again, we are, are pushed to the edge, I think, of what our imagination our minds uh, can concoct for us because this arises out of experience. Again, it's one thing for us to read about this or for me to talk about it. It's another thing to experience it and to experience it firsthand and to have a taste for that love and that grace and have a confidence that emerges in it as well, that we won't be abandoned and that our greatest resource is the love and the grace of God. And that with it, we have, have no need to fear anything. Uh, not even to walk through the shadow of the valley of death. Uh, the, you know, nothing. There's nothing for us to fear. The same Abbot Zosimus told us, a certain brother, having stayed with me and after much effort becoming learned in the monastic estate, for he was spoiled and required much care and understanding because of the weakness of this weakness of his, 
received from me the monastic habit. Now one day he said to me, Abba, I love you greatly. I replied to him, I have yet to find any person who can love me as I love him. Now you say I have, I have love for you and I trust you. However, if something should happen to displease you, you will not remain the same. I, however, whatever I might endure for you will remain the same to you. Nothing could possibly distance me from your love. Indeed, a little time passed. I did not know what had happened to him, for he was no longer living with me. But he began to speak many fearful things against me, even shocking things. I, on learning all that he was saying against me, said within myself, he is cauterized, the cauterizing iron of Jesus and was sent to cure my vainglorious soul. He is indeed my benefactor. And I looked at him as though he were a physician and a benefactor praying sincerely for him. And to him who related to me all that had been said against me, I answered, the brother knows my visible shortcomings and not all of these, but only the most insignificant. And he is telling only those that he knows for those which have escaped his attention and remain hidden are numberless. So he begins by you know, not immediately seeing this one who said that he had loved him uh, as being hateful or wanting to respond, but rather seeing him as a physician and a benefactor and one who's not even telling uh, uh, the smallest fraction of individuals the truth and the most insignificant of truths about him. Then after a time, this brother encountered me in Caesarea. He approached and, as was his custom, embraced and warmly kissed me. And I also did the same as though nothing had happened. And this happened not just once, but many times. That is, even though he had such, said such things against me, when he met me, he embraced me warmly, and I embraced him without giving him any hint or showing him any trace of grief, even though, as I said, nothing of what he had said against me had escaped my ears. Oh, that sounds brutal you know, to not only to be insulted uh, for such a long time, but then to be embraced by the individual and kiss so warmly after hearing all these things. Louise writes, how about psychopaths praying for those damaging psychopaths? They seem pseudo humans, that is humans only in form, but not in soul. They seem to be a window of the devils. I cannot pray for them. Am I wrong? Well, this is the struggle. Uh, I heard a little talk by uh, Metropolitan Callistus Ware, uh, an Orthodox uh, bishop, extraordinary speaker and writer. And he, he said that, you know, no matter how far a person gets from God, there is still within them the light of God's life and grace. And that it is imperative that we do not lose sight of that. And so even with someone who's a psychopath, where we uh, see uh, the capacity for evil acts 
and not only the capacity, but their performance, and to be rightly horrified by them. Uh, it's another thing to, to pray for them and to see that pathology for what it is, a pathology, pathos, a suffering of the soul in the deepest conceivable way that it's been taken hold of some evil and affliction that has made it uh, take on the form of something that seems less than human in, in our eyes and capable of doing things that certainly are less than, than human. And, uh, you know, this is where, again, I think Christ has to be the model. What we are being called to is a godly love and a love that is precisely that, infinite. A love that reaches uh, to the very depths of hell. There is no place where the love of God is not. And, uh, and so St. Isaac is very good about this in saying, you know, that even within hell, there is the presence of that love. And it's experienced as hellish because of the darkness of the souls that have, uh, that they have embraced. But to imitate that love is, is still to love them in whatever state they might be. And I think so often in our minds, when we consider this, we think it means, well, then uh, excusing it or diminishing the impact of their actions, which it does not. But it, it does say something about where we allow our hearts to go. And we live in an age in a world that is, uh, and, you know, I hesitate to say these things or over, uh, 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 you know, overemphasize them, but it seems to be sinking into this deep chaos and darkness where we see this capacity for you know, hostility, anger, violence that seems unparalleled. And, you know, certainly I don't see all of history and there were ages that were pretty awful, including times close to us, you know, the 20th century being one of them. Uh, but it can be frightening at times. And again, what is the place of the Christian in an age that sinks into darkness? Uh, you, know, you know, tomorrow's gospel for the Feast of the Three Hierarchs is you are the light of the world. And no matter how dark things become, uh, I was going to preach about this tomorrow. I'm going to use my little material. But when I go down in the morning, I have a little prayer corner set up and uh, my four-legged alarm clocks get me up before light and uh, I go down and I'll light a candle on this little altar prayer corner and it illuminates the entire room. You know, where you can see 
and to be able to make your your way around. And uh, this is what we are to be as Christian men and women. And it's not a perfect analogy because the light that we bear within is Christ himself, who calls himself the light. I am the light of the world. So what we carry within us is a godly light that no darkness can overcome. And this is what we have to have faith in, not in ourselves, uh, whether it's in the face of psychopaths in our world or the world crumbling around us. Our faith has to be in the infinite love and light that God gives us and an infinite love and light that cannot be overcome. There are a couple comments here. I don't want to pass over them. When we sin, we are we being what is truly means to be human, even the small sins, less than human, certainly. I think we've been created for God and in his image and likeness. And our sin is what draws us away from that reality. So we pray that the Holy Spirit reaches them. That may be all I can muster in some cases. Is it enough? Yes, I think that's, you know, part of our love when we see evil is to, it should intensify our love. You know, when we see sin in the world and when we see evil, our response to that as Christian men and women should be to pray more to seek greater conversion for ourselves, repentance for ourselves to turn toward God. And so, you know, whether it's with an individual or, uh, or for the world itself, that, you know, part of uh, being temples of the Holy Spirit is that the response within us in the face of this great evil should be immediately that to turn toward God. They saw repentance as a constant reality, not episodic tied to our fall into particular sins, but this constant turning toward God. This is what our life is. And so when we face evil within the world, our response should be that, not feeling that we overcome those things, but only God can and has. I have overcome the world, we are told. And this is what we are called to believe, that despite the darkness that we experience, that evil has been overcome and will not have the last word. Rachel writes, imagine a masterpiece that has been defaced, yet by grace, God can restore his image in the sinner. That's right. You know, the impossible becomes possible. What is... Uh, impossible for us is possible for God. And this is what faith sh should do for us. Faith is a kind of knowing, but it's a, a knowing that comes through our experience of God and an experience of that infinite love. And when we try to approach our faith life intellectually, even this question is a great question that Louise puts forward about the psychopath, you know, if we were simply to strive and strain to work that out on an intellectual level, other than rather than through 
trying trying to understand it in and through prayer and the experience of God and in and through faith, we are destined for failure. It's only through this experience of the Lord that we can understand this kind of love by first having received it. God has loved us first. And this is what we have to seek to immerse ourselves in to be able to grasp it. And this has often been the criticism of, you know, Christianity or particular Catholicism in the West is an over intellectualizing of the faith and, uh, and, you know, making it solely creedal uh, in our minds rather than experiential or making it notional rather than real. Uh, Tracy writes, Jesus has people in the gospels. He has Solomon in a dream. And I believe he asks us, what do you want me to do for you? We can ask for grace to be able to pray for those difficult for us to pray for. Absolutely, it's a very good point. You know, to pray for that which we are we clearly don't understand or desire. And sometimes we have to pray for the the desire for it to be within our hearts. Again, it's not something that we can create for ourselves. Okay, let's finish the story here to see where we are taken. After all of this, it so happened that one day when he encountered me, having run up to me as usual to embrace me, he fell at my feet and taking hold of them said to me, forgive me, Abba, for the love of Christ, for the love of Christ, for I have said many fearful things against you. I then, raising him up and kissing him, said to him graciously, Do you remember, beloved of God, that when you said, I love you very much, I told you that I have yet to find any person who can love me as I love him? You know the rest of what I told you, too. Let me tell you, then, that nothing of what you said against me was lost on me. I heard all that you said to whom you said it and where it was said. But I never said that what the brother said was untrue, nor did anyone entice me into saying a bad word about you. Rather, I said to those who related to me your aspersions that what you had said was true and that you said these things out of love to befriend me and that I did not once neglect to remember you in my prayers. The following is also proof of the love which I have for you. I once suffered terribly from a pain in my eye, but immediately upon bringing you to mind, I made the sign of the cross and said, Lord Jesus Christ, by the prayers of this brother, make me well. And immediately I was cured. From this time forward, the brother in question placed absolute faith in me ceased slandering me, and lovingly showed me great honor. The elder concluded, We know neither how to be loved nor to receive honor, but have forsaken prudence. For if someone is patient with his brother, when the latter becomes angry by virtue of some satanic influence and turns against him, the brother will shortly come to his senses. Thus, when he comes to see the wrong brother, 
forbearance and understanding un, and forbearance and understands the patience that he has shown him. He's exceedingly grateful and is so overcome by the brother's powerful love for him that he is ready to sacrifice himself for his sake. I don't know about you, but the most piercing part of that was that I had a pain in my eye and asked God to heal me through the intercession of this brother is an extraordinary thought. You know, asking God uh, to hear the prayers of the very one who was, who was uh, tearing apart his character. Uh, again, you know, I think these are hard to wrap our minds around, and they should be. I, mean, I think what is being shown us here is an otherworldly love. And uh, in, I think one of the things that we will often tell ourselves when we sin or when we are confronted with this is, I'm just human. I'm just human. And the reality is, is that's not true. We are not just human. That we have been created in the image and likeness of God. And that we've been given the grace of God. That his spirit dwells within us. That we receive God in the Holy Eucharist. That we've become God and God bears by his grace. And it is this that should shape our experience of these realities described in these stories because how could one possibly do that you know are these fanciful stories or are they stories that arise out of a person who understands their life in christ in an extraordinarily deep fashion that they have ceased to become what they were in him that become something greater. And, uh, you know, I think psychologically, we it's an excuse, I'm only human, when we, we say that. And, uh, and it keeps us from simply acknowledging that we chose something much less than what God has offered us. He's offered us the capacity to love as he does. There's a comment here. Is it Amale? I'll trust that I'm saying, or Amal. Amal. How, do, how do you overcome the fear of needing to work for money to survive when you're otherwise completely ready to sell everything and follow God and devote your life day in and day out to him, to honor him, praising him, praying, reading about him, etc. It has become hard to live in both worlds. Well, you know, I think this is where we go back to what we read earlier this evening, that there is nothing easier than to live in that synergy that is spoken of here by, I think it was Zosimos, that God provides us for an, with an abundance of grace, whatever our station in life might be married, lay, religious, and in the moment, the, our responsibility is to say yes to God 
And so if we are saying yes to God and providing for ourselves and family, then that yes opens us up to a grace that drives out that fear that we often have about our survival or our ability to survive within the, the world, that we don't need to go off to the desert uh, to be able to say that yes, or to experience that synergy. And I think, again, this is why we are offered those stories where someone like St. Anthony is told there is a person working in the city who has reached a higher level of virtue than you. And it turns out, you know, that somebody who has a job in the busy city and who's simply turning his mind and his heart to God throughout the course of the day, remembering him constantly in whatever it is that he does. And I think this, this is a big problem in our age and why it's so important for us to go back to the fathers, because we uh, create this, this view of there being like first tier Christians and second tier Christians, uh, rather than our understanding of this universal call to holiness by virtue of our, our baptism. And, uh, and we've perpetuated that via idolizing, you know, those who enter into the religious life. But I'll guarantee you that it is no guarantee that they are not going to be embattled every, every much as, as we are who live in the world. You know, I've talked to uh, enough monks in my time who, you know, don't have to deal with so many of the things that we deal with in the world, but what they deal with in the human heart is exactly what we deal with. And, uh, and it takes the same struggle to, to humble oneself before, before God. And to realize that, you know, he called them there not because they're perfect, you know, but often just for the opposite reason. So there's every reason, you know, as strong as these stories are, and even frightful at times, that there's every reason for us to be filled with hope and joy in the promises of Christ. That what we've been called to is something extraordinary. And it should make us tremble on one level, that this is how we've been called to love. But... Uh, within that should be an overwhelming peace that is given to us so freely and that, you know, our response is that of the will to, move, to make this simple movement toward God to, that is often as simple as a yes to him in the moment that opens us up to that experience of grace. So when reading these, you know, try... Tried to see the, the full picture there. Okay. Uh, before we close with our, our final prayer, for those who are in Pittsburgh, uh, we're having just this mini morning retreat this Sunday here at my parish. Uh, so Divine Liturgy at 9, uh, 10 a.m. or immediately after the liturgy, a brunch. And then we are going to have a talk on St. Ephraim's prayer 
that is said during Lent, uh, during the liturgy. And uh, so if you're in the Pittsburgh area or close enough to get here, uh, please join us. It's Saints Peter and Paul in Duquesne, beautiful Duquesne, Pennsylvania. If you've never been here, you, you have to come to see the sites. And uh, but it's a beautiful parish, and I'm sure it'll be a wonderful morning. So just let me know if you're coming so we can get the food ready. Okay, so won't we close, close here? And if there are Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks.